This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for the fifth episode of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and I'm joined here today by another really great guest. He is an iOS developer at Next Apps. And he's the creator of Picture, which is a really awesome pixel art editor for iOS. He also created Panel Kits, which is a framework for building panels on iOS. And last but not least, he actually created his very own programming language called Lioness. It's Louis Daho. Welcome to the show, Louis. Hi there. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So you are actually the very first guest on the show that I haven't met in person. Oh, well, uh, we, we really should at some point. Yeah, I think so. You know, we are what the cool kids call internet friends. <laughs> sure thing. <laughs> yeah. So you are over in Belgium, right? That's right. Uh, in the middle of Europe. Yeah. Yeah, I really should come visit. I mean, it's like right in the mid middle of Europe. I've actually only been to the Brussels airport. That's oh, it. Yeah. So uh, you've been doing some really interesting stuff. You created Picture, which is uh, you know a really cool uh, pixel art editor. Like, how did that come to be? Like, what made you create a pixel art editor? Yeah, so a couple of years ago, actually, uh, back in 2014, if I'm correct, yeah, uh, I was watching this presentation by the original artist of the pixel art icons from the Macintosh back in you know the 80s. Uh, which was a woman, I really should should have uh, looked up her name before we started, but uh, yeah, and she really inspired me to like take a look at pixel art and how to create it. And that sort of made me end up creating sort of a demo application just in black and white, like they did it back in the 80s uh, on an iPad. And then after, you know, a couple of months of actual development that turned into a full-fledged uh, pixel art editor called picture cool and this is something you're doing like on your own or do you have like a team who helps you out building this app uh no so this is all on my own picture yeah cool and while building this app you also you've been open sourcing like parts of it like kind of fundamental stuff like the uh panel kit framework yeah so in the past year i've really been trying to focus on open sourcing some of the stuff that i had sort of privately been working on before and sort of opening, you know, the vault, I should say, uh, in terms of all the, the code I had that's, well, why not open source it, right? Instead of keeping it just private. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I've been doing kind of the same thing. And I think a, a lot of people have, you know, we've been using so much open source ourselves. And when you have something that you feel could be more generally usable, you're like, let's just put it out there and, you know, see what happens. It's, it's giving back to the community. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like something like Panel Kit is super interesting to put out there because even if you're someone like me who I, I'm not building any apps that are using like panel panel driven UIs, it's super interesting to look at and to kind of see how you achieve these kind of UI paradigms on, on iOS. So you've got kind of a bit of bit of attention from that framework and like the, it's I feel like when that came out, uh, it inspired kind of a lot of conversation around these kind of panel UIs. And I know there's a lot of people in the community as well who have done similar things. So how do you feel about this metaphor, like on the iPad, like, you know, dragging panels around and 
and having these more like it's almost like windows right yeah well not the os but windows yeah windows that you can drag around and such that, yeah. that's right not not the windows operating system yeah thanks <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so yeah really pedal came to be from the argument against you know the people that keep saying like well ipad is not a real computer you can't replace whatever a laptop or a desktop computer with it and up until you know a couple of months ago really that argument sort of made sense because if you looked at ios 10 and, and before that it's it really was this stretched up iphone ui in in many ways when you looked at an ipad and and the software that it ran but in you know the past months with ios 11 and before that with you know things like panel kits uh, which i released it it really shows the, the potential with simply software additions to the ipad to really make it quote unquote a, a real computer right yeah it's super interesting because i mean with these devices the whole idea is that it's just like one big screen right and it's super interesting to see, like, you don't have to release new hardware to make the product itself better. It's just so much about the, like, UI paradigms and mm -hmm. how things are implemented. Yeah, that's really cool. So do you have, like, any other ideas or things that you are planning to do around PanelKit? Or is it mostly, like, the, the implementation and picture that you're focused on? So one thing I really want to take a look at is for panel resizing, which is sort of a tricky thing to get right on a touch interface. Because of course on the desktop, if you take a look at a window, uh, say on your Mac or even on Windows, when you drag your mouse to like the edges or the corners, you get this arrow, which you can you know click and drag and you can resize pretty much any window on it to pretty much any size you want. On the iPad, on the other hand, there's this concept that has been there from the beginning that an app should be full screen which made sense. But then in iOS 9, there was this split screen that they introduced where you can have two apps. And in iOS 11, there's now this floating app you can have above two apps in a split view mode. And so the real issue at hand is how do you resize it to a size that you want? Because if you, you know, if you take a look at the split screen on an iPad, it's it doesn't allow for much resizing. It has this resizing thing in the middle that you can drag horizontally. And there's like, you can do like one third of the screen, I believe, uh, maybe half or three, uh, three fourths, maybe something like that. Yeah. So something like that. Yeah. And so, and, and by the way, that's only in the width, right? The height stays the same always. And on an iPad 9.7 inch and perhaps iPad mini, that isn't that much of an issue, but the real issue starts to show when you, you know, take a look at this iPad 12.9 inch, you know, the iPad Pro that they introduced back in 2015 for the first time, and they updated this uh, this year at WWDC. And, you know, with, with a screen size that big, which is, you know, almost 13 inch, it's it kind of becomes silly <laughs> to have all the apps be required to fill the full height at any time and you really want to resize you know well of course panel kit is about panels but you know if you think about applications a sort of window manager you really in an ideal world on an ipad would want to resize applications to virtually any size you can imagine even in the height not just the width 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's just something I want to take a look at uh, with panel kits uh, to see if I can sort of solve the resizing for panels and maybe it can be applicable to applications in general. Oh, that sounds really interesting. It's, uh, yeah, a lot of people have been talking about like, what if you would bring some kind of windowing system of any of any kind to the iPad, right? Because you have these larger screens now and like you say, like you can change the width of, of the apps, but what about the rest of the screen real estate, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't always need things to be that tall. Uh, so yeah, it's super interesting to see the kind of work that you're doing and other people in the community as well to kind of create these like other alternative kind of ways of interacting with that device. So yeah, super, super cool stuff. So uh, as part of, I also believe it was part of the uh, picture, right? When you started working on, on Lioness, which is your own programming language, right? Yeah, that's correct. So uh, as a lot of my open source projects uh, are born. They are born out of a picture, or at least they are started in a picture, and then they sort of escape into the open source world. They break free. And so the thing with uh, Lioness is that I was imagining a feature for picture, which would be sort of a shader-like drawing feature, which basically in layman's terms means that you write a script you write some code, you know, a small piece of code, a script that gets evaluated for every pixel that is drawn on the screen. And basically every time a pixel is drawn, it enters this script that you can write yourself. And it has a couple of input parameters like the current XY position of the pixel or maybe the size of the document. And as an output, it expects a color. And basically with those really simple input and output parameters, you can achieve a whole lot. Of course, with you know the, the, the power of a programming language, which I decided to create myself. Yeah, yeah, that's super cool, I think, because there's there's been a lot of shader languages uh, obviously used in you know things like 3D rendering and game development and things like that, but here you are creating a more kind of simple or easier to access, uh, more accessible, uh, kind of inspired by Swift, a little bit language for for inside of an of an iOS app. Yeah, the syntax is definitely offline. is definitely uh, kept to a minimum in terms of verbosity, in terms of its keywords and what have you. For example, it does not have a type system. Well, not really. Anyways, it's it's kind of dynamic in that way that. Well, for an example, if you create a function with a parameter or an output parameter that it returns, you don't specify the type uh, at compile time. So you can pass anything to a function that takes an argument and basically it can return anything. But the way you deal with that sort of makes sense in a shader language. You wouldn't necessarily want to use that as a general purpose language, uh, which Swift actually is. And so... It's, it's, I think, a nice example of a domain-specific language being shaders. Right. Yeah, it's like very focused on math and manipulating things like colors and things like that, right? Right, indeed. Yeah. Really cool. I actually wrote my very first Lioness program yesterday. Oh, nice. Yeah, I wrote a little marathon script, actually, that could uh, take a Lion file and pass it on to the Linus compiler and then run it and return the results. 
Uh, and because it's math, of course, I imp implemented Fibonacci. <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah, and then I had a look in your repo and I saw that you actually had Fibonacci as an example there as well. So yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah, great to hear. Yeah, hope you had fun with it. Yeah, it was it was great fun. I figured, you know, at, before I was going to talk to you, I should at least, you know, give it a little bit of a try. And I've had it on my to-do list for a while since I saw it uh, that, you know, I want to try it out and see what it's like. And yeah, so I did. And it, yeah, it was it was really cool. And I can see how it can be really powerful inside something like picture and being able to manipulate colors in a more like dynamic way. So yeah, that's uh, it's really, really exciting, I think. Cool. So as you know, this show is all about answering questions that were submitted by the listeners and the audience. And it's really what keeps this show going. So I'm really, really thankful uh, for everybody who have sent in questions and comments and different topics, topic ideas. And if you have something that you'd like us to discuss on the show, but it's not really a question, it's more like a topic, you can totally submit that as well. Uh, anything that you would like us to talk on the show, you can send either on the website, which is swiftbysundell.com slash podcast, or you can just tweet or send a message to at swiftbysundell on Twitter. So for this episode, we have a couple of really great questions, and we're going to start with a question from Artem Novichokov, and he is at iOS Artem on Twitter, and he's asking about architecture. He asks, how do you choose an architecture for a future iOS app? Should it be a silver bullet approach or does it depend on the number of screens or the complexity of the app? So this is a very common question that I get asked quite a lot. Uh, you know, people approach me at conferences or ask me on Twitter, like what kind of architecture uh, I recommend? Uh, so I thought before we dive into and talk about architecture, we should kind of just uh, talk a little bit about what we mean when we talk about architecture. Because one thing I've noticed is that it the word kind of means many different things for different people. And people think about architecture in kind of very different ways. Uh, for some people, they kind of uh, put uh, architecture very close together with the design pattern you choose. So if you're using MVC as a design pattern, that means that you have an MVC architecture. Or some people, they like to get really, really into details and kind of draw these like class diagrams of the entire app and consider that to be their architecture. And then of course, there's like all of these kind of shades in between. So to kind of kick it off, uh, Louis, uh, when you kind of get a question like this about architecture, uh, what do you think about? Like, what, what, is, what is architecture for you? What, in what terms do you think about it? Well, in sort of the literal sense, an architecture would be what platform does it run on? Does it run on iOS or, you know, Androids? That's an architecture, but that's obviously not what's really meant in this question, in this context. So I suppose architecture in terms of iOS applications, which seems to be uh, what he's talking about here, is really how do you how do you manage the views and the UI and connect it with uh, indeed as you said like with MVC how do you connect that to your your data and the logic and how do you put that all together? Yeah, exactly. So when you're building an app uh, or when you're starting a new project like an open source framework or an application like any kind of system. Uh, do you have like a go-to architecture that you normally use or do you kind of make it up on the go or how do you approach it? Well, so most applications I work on, 
uh, are basically client-server applications, iOS applications, which talk to a API backend, which most of the time is a RESTful API. And so there are definitely some, you know, things that I do in pretty much all my projects in terms of structure, so, such as, well, using a Llamo Fire, for example, to manage the, the network calls. And then I have, you know, my, uh, well, not my, but I use uh, Object Mapper to to parse the JSON. Well, not parse it, but, you know, turn it into model objects. And that's how I make my my network layer. But then in terms of, you know, managing the view and the controllers, it's pretty much the, 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 the old MVC story that Apple has been promoting for the better part of a decade now, um, which is, you know, you have your view controller, you have your views, and then you have your model objects. And there's this, well, there's this diagram you can, you can draw about which talk to which. And so, yeah. But nothing fancy, to be honest. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of different ways you can structure it. And from my approach or uh, my perspective, uh, I really don't think like there's a silver bullet for architecture. And well, that, that's kind of true for most things. And I think already we've we've said this like quite a number of times on the show on these kind of few episodes that there are there are no silver bullets. Like it's very hard to find a solution in any field where it's just applicable everywhere in any situation. Yeah, it always depends. Yeah, it's like the boring answer, right? It's It, it depends. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but what I think is more important, like is kind of what kind of guidelines you set for yourself when it comes to architecture. And here, I think the most important part is that you kind of agree within your team so that you don't end up with this like very big, messy, like everything is made in different ways. Like one developer loves MVVM and implements everything with MVVM. Another developer loves Rx and builds everything with Rx. And then you come into this project as a new person and you look at this app and you're like, hmm, what's going on here? <laughs> and it becomes very hard to orient yourself because all the different parts are kind of architectured in a different way. So I don't think the most important decision is kind of which you know letter combination <laughs> you choose, like MVC, MVVM, or Viper, or whatever. I think the most important part is like that you agree on kind of how to build things on a very high level in your team. Yeah, consistency is, is key. Yeah, and things like, for example, Viper, which is a more, I would say, more specific kind of design pattern and kind of drives you in a very specific direction in terms of architecture, uh, can be super useful if you are working in a team which has kind of had a bit of a problem with inconsistency in the past. And then like putting something like Viper in the app could make things a bit more organized because you have these more clear roles for all your objects. Yeah, Viper, uh, to be honest, I don't have much experience with. I've, I've heard the name fly around a bit, but I haven't taken a deep a deep look at it yet. Uh, because, yeah, as, as you've mentioned, I, I tend to really do my own thing, which you could probably, if you looked at my code or, or at my project, you could probably put some letter combination on it that it might be. But it's, it's just my own thing that I think fits for the job that needs to be done. Yeah, and one kind of problem with creating these more like specific or very like highly opinionated uh, architecture patterns is that 
it's very hard to interpret them in a given app because every app is different, right? And every problem domain is very different. So I also tend to go with the approach you mentioned, which is, you know, I look at the problem domain, I look at what am I trying to build here and look at like what kind of high level kind of groups can I make of my objects and how can I make them relate to each other in a way that makes sense. One thing I have been sort of uh, consistent in in most recent Swift projects or most Swift uh, most recent Swift applications I've worked on is to use protocol-oriented design patterns, which I try to use, for example, for model objects, which may have some fields uh, in common. And instead of creating a base class, I will create a protocol, which, you know, certain... Uh, model objects may conform to and then sort of which goes hand in hand to uh, with that is instead of making everything a class make everything a struct things like that which make a lot of sense if you spend some time with swift uh, that that definitely comes up uh, again and again in most of my projects nowadays yeah uh, i tend to do the same thing and i think also that ties into another kind of philosophy or uh, guideline that I have, which is I try to build things as close to kind of Apple's style as possible. So when they are kind of highly promoting MVC in UIKit, I try to stick to MVC as well. Sometimes I use view models and kind of a more MVVM-ish approach, but I try to stick to kind of the standards because it will make the code just more naturally fit in with the rest of the operating system. And the same thing goes with Swift, which is very protocol oriented, right? So it makes a lot of sense to architect your own code that way as well, because it will fit very well into uh, kind of the rest of the, of the language and the, the standard library. Yeah, indeed. Cool. So to sum up, I think we kind of, we have similar thoughts on this, which is, you know, the letter combination can be a good uh, guide, uh, but it's not necessarily the most kind of important decision. What's important is more like the, the kind of, decisions you make depending on the app and how you structure your code. And using uh, protocol-oriented programming can be a great way to achieve a better architecture. Yep, that's about it. Awesome. So let's go ahead now and move over to the next question, which comes from Dario Roa. And he is at Dario Rubik on Twitter. And he asks, what is your development setup and your devices? Like, what devices do we use day-to-day when we're working on our apps? Yeah, so... This might make you laugh, but my main development machine that I have is a MacBook Air from 2014 at the moment. Wow. <laughs> yeah. However, however, to redeem some screed cred, uh, I will say that a MacBook Pro is coming very soon. As a matter of fact, in a couple of days, my MacBook Pro uh, with touch bar should be coming in the mail. So that will be a, a pretty nice uh, upgrade from my current MacBook Air. Uh, and I do have to say, as a side note, I do have an iMac at my job, at my full-time job, which I use. Uh, so the MacBook Air isn't the only development machine I've been using as of late. Right. And then putting the Macs on the side for a minute, uh, I have an iPhone, obviously, and I have an iPhone 7 at the moment. Whether or not I will have an iPhone 8 in a couple of months will have to be seen. <laughs> uh, and in terms of iPad, I have an iPad Pro. Uh, a 9.7 inch one. So that's about it. Cool. Yeah, I uh, I also have an iPhone 7. I have the Jet Black iPhone 7, which I really love. And uh, we're going to see next week what Apple is going to 
you know, cook up and see if maybe it's going to be an iPhone 8 or not. <laughs> um, and yeah, for, for doing my coding work, I have two computers. I have one for work and one for my, all of my other uh, projects that I do. And my work computer is a 15-inch MacBook Pro. Uh, I guess it's the similar one to what you're getting, uh, but it's the previous generation, so it's the 2016 one. Uh, and then for my own stuff and all the other work that I do, I have a 13-inch MacBook Pro uh, without touch bar. And that is by far my favorite computer ever. Uh, it is amazing and I really love it, uh, mostly because it's so thin and light and easy to carry around. Because I do a lot of traveling and I work remotely and I tend to work in all kind of different bizarre places. And having these this like smaller computer is like perfect for me. Uh, so yeah, that's I guess that's my setup. I, I also have a few older devices that I use. I use an iPhone 5S with iOS 9 if I need to test like some iOS 9 specific stuff. And I have an iPhone 6 as well. Uh, because when I tend to do uh, game development, I test everything on my iPhone 6 because I want to make sure that things run really smoothly, even on like slightly older hardware. So I don't like only try all, everything on the iPhone 7 and then at the end, it will not run well on the iPhone 6. Uh, yeah, makes sense. I do some similar stuff with testing on older devices, uh, but I do it at my my main job, uh, which has sort of a device lab, which you know has a bunch of old iPhones. We also have a bunch of old Android phones to test some stuff on, even an Android tablet. And yes, those do still exist. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> it's it's important to test on on those devices. Yeah, it's one of those things that I kind of miss a little bit from working like at, uh, like in the office, like having this like device pool easily accessible. Uh, but I have I have a good range, I think, and I don't currently do any work on the iPad, so I don't have an iPad at the moment. But I will probably get one pretty soon. Uh, but I haven't gotten around to it just yet. So for now, iPhones only. All right, so yeah, that's uh, it's always interesting to hear like what tools people use and what's their pref like their computer uh, choice and what they prefer because everyone's so different in this regard and that's why it's good that we have different kind of machines to choose from these days as well, even if they all come with the same keyboard. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's move over to the next question and this one comes from uh, Hugo Lundin. And he is the one person who I really know how to pronounce his name because he's Swedish. Okay. <laughs> and he is, he is at regular language on Twitter. And he asks you, uh, Louis, how you got into compilers. Uh, it would be really fun to hear about your hardest design choices creating Lioness. So how did everything get started? Like, how did you get into compilers in general? Like, how did that happen? So... In general, I'm like really interested in in pretty much all of computer science, you could say. I'm not just, you know, an iOS developer. That is, you know, my job title. Uh, I'm really interesting in interested in, you know, these these strange sort of fields that most programmers perhaps never spend time in, and I really every now and then try to create something from the ground up to really understand how it works. And I've always been fascinated, of course, by compilers because it's something, as a programmer, you use all day. You use it every day, you, you write code, and if you don't know how it works, it, it almost seems like magic that you type, you know, your Swift code and Xcode, and out of it comes, 
well, as some people may not even know, assembler code, which gets run on the CPU and, or in some cases, a GPU. Uh, and so it's really interesting to learn about these concepts, not per se in you know, full depth, but at least uh, the, the key principles of it. And that's really what, uh, what made me go into compilers and see what I can you know, learn there and made me uh, perhaps even a better programmer by understanding how the compiler uh, or some compilers work. Yeah, that's a, that's a great reason. And I haven't gotten into compilers yet myself, but I, I tend to have a similar mindset. Like I don't stop where kind of UI kit begins or where, you know, the standard library begins. I love to go a little bit lower level sometimes and try to understand how things are implemented under the hood, right? Mm -hmm. Because not only do you learn more about how things work that you use on a regular basis, but you can also like learn how to debug certain issues. And you can also kind of understand some of the trade-offs that were made uh, with someone created, uh, in, in your case, a compiler, or in my came, case, like a game engine, which, which I'm working on. So uh, what are some of those trade-offs that you, that you discovered? And what, what were those like hardest design choices that you faced when you started working on Lioness, you think? Yeah, so as I've mentioned earlier, Lioness is a shader-like programming language, meaning that it's not general purpose. And so the real balance that I had to maintain was to not make it too complex, but it also had to be powerful enough to be useful as a shader language, right? If, only, if, if the only thing you can do is add and subtract numbers, that's not very interesting. You need certain interesting things that programming languages tend to have, but then again, not making it too complex, uh, which would make it overkill perhaps for its purpose. And in terms of lioness, what that meant was not having enums and classes. So there's no reference types of any kind. And there's also, for example, no type system, which I mentioned earlier, which makes the syntax a lot lighter and at the same time, I guess, it makes it a bit more powerful because you can reuse functions without, you know, uh, for different types, you can reuse functions. And one other thing that Linus does not have, which I was kind of on the fence on, but it's kind of decided now, is to not have strings. So there are no strings in Linus, only numbers. Uh, there are structs, however. So you can pretty much you know, bundle uh, a couple of variables and you can have structs in structs, which uh, again, can be very powerful if you use them correctly. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, that's how that uh, went for Lioness. Yeah, yeah I, th I think that makes sense. And like you also mentioned, it's, you have a language here which has a very clear purpose, right? You're not trying to create the next Swift or the next C or the next like general purpose language. You are building something more specific. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. So using only the types that it that that it needs to have, I think, makes sense. So was it something like more that you felt uh, like this is like something you really had to research before you implemented it, or did it kind of just progress naturally as you went deeper and deeper? Yeah. So to be clear, before I started working on Linus, I had no clue how to build a compiler. Like we're talking like twelve months ago, I did not know pretty much anything about compilers. I knew, you know, it existed and sort of what it did, 
but about the internal workings of it, uh, I had no clue. And so a lot of time, well, not a lot of time, I, I should say, but like in the beginning, I, I really watched some uh, presentations about programming languages and the, the architecture of compilers and try to take some of the key principles and then actually go into into Xcode and, and Swift and actually try to implement something that, you know, does something. <laughs> and so it, start, it started really easy, like basically taking the, uh, the mathematical operations, you know, addition, subtraction, and basically making a calculator where you can say two plus three as a string, and it will parse that string and say, okay, that's the number two, and that's uh, the operation plus, and that's the number three, and out of it comes number five. And as a real starting point, I watched this great YouTube presentation. Well, this presentation that is on YouTube about uh, some Python developer. We should perhaps put it in the, the show notes. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes. Which talks about how to create an interpreter. And an interpreter is sort of, well, it's, it's linked to a compiler, I guess, which basically goes into... Uh, not really compiling it down to assembly, which you know Xcode uh, does when you write Swift, but actually executing that immediately and giving you results. Uh, and so yeah, that got me started uh, really well actually in just a matter of an hour, I believe the presentation is. It, it really got me started with the core principles of compilers and you know uh, a couple of weeks later after watching that, I had, sort of a working compiler, which was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah, it's interesting sometimes, like it's, you have something, you stand on the outside of something and you just feel like this is this black box, I have no idea how it works. And then you just need this like one entry point, like a talk or you're meeting someone or you're reading some blog post. And then all of a sudden you're like in this world and now you can kind of start under, to understand things and like piece them together, right? I think that's uh, super cool. All right, uh, we can continue actually on the topic of compilers. Um, we have our friend, uh, Paul Hudson. Uh, he, had, he is at two straws on Twitter. Uh, he asks you, uh, now that you've uh, implemented a compiler in Swift, what do you think is holding Swift back from being self-hosting? And just to explain like the term self-hosting, uh, it's basically when you have a language that you want to compile and you also implement the compiler in that language. So in the case of Swift, it would be what if Swift was used to implement the Swift compiler? It sounds pretty crazy, but it's actually possible. Uh, you use a little bit of bootstrapping. So you write like the, the core of the compiler, the, what you need, like the bare minimums uh, in another language. And then you just use that bootstrap to kind of build the rest. And Swift is not currently self-hosted. It uses uh, LLVM for its compiler infrastructure, which is C++ based. So the compiler is pretty much all C++. Uh, so it's not self-hosted. Uh, so what do you think about that, Louis? Like what, what would need to happen in order for Swift to be self-hosted? Yeah, so the main reason that Swift is not self-hosted at the moment is because the priorities perhaps are at some other places in terms of Swift development. For example, the ABI stability that we desperately want as developers, as Swift developers. 
And so the real, the whole Swift team at Apple has been focusing on on those issues to really make Swift an awesome language, and and worry later about you know the internals and making it self-hosted because, to be honest, it doesn't really affect the end developer. I guess if it's self-hosted, um, and so the focus is just in a different place at the moment. But eventually, it's it's definitely possible, uh, even with LLVM, you wouldn't necessarily have to rewrite LLVM in C++ if if Swift can interact with C++ libraries, which it sort of can already now, although it's it's not that full-fledged, uh, is what I hear. But yeah, it's uh, definitely something the team at Apple is interested in, uh, if I understand correctly. And once, you know, the to-do list is sort of done <laughs> with the things that they, they want to do right now, they, they might uh, do it make itself hosted. Yeah, I guess it would be like kind of a huge job to make it entirely self-hosted. But one thing that could happen, I guess, is if you would have like really first class interoperability between C++ and Swift, you could start make parts in, in Swift. Sure. Kind of how like we approach a shared uh, Swift slash Objective-C code base, uh, like we have Swift and Objective-C interact with each other. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And I think like the main benefit would probably not be like that Swift is a better language to build compilers than C++. Maybe it is, I don't know. But for me at least, uh, just looking at it from the outside, it would feel a lot more approachable, like the project. I've, I've had it on my to-do list for quite a while to try to contribute something to this Swift compiler, but I'm not a C++ expert. So just like looking at this code kind of is a little bit intimidating because not only is it a compiler, which I don't know much about, it's also C++, like in another language that I'm not like super comfortable with right now. So I guess that could help. Yeah, so to mention or to answer sort of your concern about contributing to the Swift programming language, I do feel the need to say that just because you are not a C++ expert, that shouldn't really hold you back from contributing to the Swift programming language, even in as far as to say that you don't necessarily have to contribute to the compiler. Actually, the Swift project on GitHub is much larger than that. Things like the standard library of Swift is written in Swift, of course. Things like, you know, the string and uh, integer and whatever you, you know, array and dictionary, stuff like that. That's all implemented in Swift and is open source on GitHub. And so if you're, you know, intimidated perhaps by the compiler or you don't want to deal with that, that's fine. You can still, you know, contribute in other ways to the Swift project, definitely. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, and there's also the Swift package manager, uh, which is probably the thing I've been kind of closest to, you know, uh, to making changes there and, and experimenting with because, you know, I'm working a lot with the Swift package manager. Um, so yeah, that's a really good point. There's a lot of uh, parts of Swift that are not C++. But do you think like, do you think there's something else there? Like with, in terms of self-hosting, like do you, do you, you said before that you think Apple might get to it, but do you think like it's, it's even on the like roadmap? Is it, is it even something they're interested in or is it something that might happen in the future? Uh, if I recall correctly, there was this interview with Chris Latner uh, at the Accidental Tech Podcast, perhaps, mm -hmm. where he talked about Swift eventually maybe um, being self-hosted. And so, at least in his mind, and I don't want to misquote him or anything, 
but if I remember correctly, at least in his mind, it's definitely something he would like to do eventually or to have eventually, uh, being, you know, Swift being self-hosted. Uh, and one other point is perhaps on the frequently proposed proposals of Swift for like the Swift evolution. Uh, I believe on GitHub there is even uh, listed at the bottom somewhere uh, the question of rewriting the Swift compiler in Swift instead of, you know, C++ at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, and the answer that they put next to that is like, well, not now, basically, that they want to do it, but not now. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that I think that makes sense in terms of priorities. So I think we have time for just a final question, uh, a little bit quick answer. And this one comes from Kabir uh, Obarai, and he is at Kabir Obarai on Twitter. And he's asking us, how is our approach to UI and UX design? I tend to get stuck when designing an interface and end up using default unstylized UI kit elements. So do you, for picture, I guess you do your own design, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And what is your approach to UI design? Like, how do you get out of this uh, tendency to like only use the unstylized uh, UI kit elements? Well, there's a bit of a funny anecdote to that, which is I showed picture a couple of years ago, I think before it was announced or before it was released, the 1.0 version to a friend of mine, which... Uh, he did not at the moment, I think, have an iOS device or he just got his iPad, something like that. Anyways, he, he saw a picture and he said, wow, that looks beautiful, the app. And, you know, I was flattered. Uh, because Well, it did look beautiful, to be honest, but anyways. And basically what he was complimenting me on was pretty much all default UI kits. And so the point I'm trying to make with that story is that even if you don't you know, go all crazy and create your custom components, you can still create a beautiful UI with the default UI kit components. Now, of course, there are some elements you can stylize nowadays in UI kits, such as the tint color, which I set to this orange in picture. And of course, things like the background colors uh, and stuff like that, or the corner radius, uh, things like that, which if you tweak just a little bit without too much effort and without even, you know, too much design uh, talent, I should say, you can come to a pretty nice re uh, result. Yeah, absolutely. I really agree. And I don't think it's so much about like creating this like super custom, like very advanced looking UI. I think like most of the well-designed apps, like they have a very simple and easy to understand UI. And I think so much of modern design is not so much about like these like very specific uh, designs, like pixel perfect designs. It's more about like what colors you use. Like you mentioned the tint color or what font you use. And that is something that you can customize super easily. And I think like if you are a developer working on, on an app, like in your spare time, like both of us are, or you know, you are maybe doing it full time, but you're on your own spending like a lot of time on inventing your own UI kit elements is probably not like the best way to spend your time. I mean, it depends of course on, on what app you're building, but I think there's a lot to be said to just like doing these like subtle tweaks to UI kit that are like part of the public API, like tint color and fonts and spacing and things like that, because that will just be so much easier to maintain as well going down the road. 
you won't have to like rewrite all of your UI code every time a new version of iOS comes out. Yeah, indeed. And if you do go and create some custom components, which don't necessarily have to be crazy, but you know, some custom components that may not be included in UIKit and that you need, uh, I really try to extend UIKit in that matter and not reinvent the wheel. And so looking at, well, if you create maybe a custom slider, take a look at the default slider and how does you know the shadow look or whatever, the, the line width, stuff like that to make it at least look familiar to UIKit, which of course uh, users kind of expect nowadays. They don't expect if they open an iPhone or an iPad app to get this you know, alien uh, UI. They, they expect certain styles for buttons or for uh, table views, I, I guess. Uh, Absolutely, and, and also I think more importantly is the behavior. Like, you know, what happens when I drag a slider or when I drag and drop or when I swipe a table view cell? You know, like there's all these behaviors encoded in the default UIKit classes that you get for free, which can be sometimes really hard to replicate. Yeah, uh, again, don't reinvent the wheel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I guess to sum up, like, I think we have similar approaches there as well, is that there's no shame in using the default UIKit elements. And if you want to style them and make your UI look more interesting, you can always use all the APIs that are available, like changing fonts, changing colors, changing the tint color. Uh, and then if you need to build something custom to kind of spice things up a bit, uh, try to do it in a way that still feels at home on the system uh, so that you don't end up with this like very, very uh, crazy UI that people will find hard to use and hard to understand. All right, so that's all of our questions for this episode. And I wanna thank everybody who sent in these questions and all of the other questions as well. Uh, we will get to them eventually, I promise. Uh, we'll, we'll try to take like a handful of questions each time and uh, to kind of tweak the questions a little bit depending on who is on the show, of course. So if you want to send in uh, new questions, you can do so by going to swiftbysundell.com slash podcast, or just tweet your question to at swiftbysundell on Twitter. On the next episode, my guest is going to be Agnes Vasharhai, and she's an iOS developer at Topology Eyewear in San Francisco. Before that, she was living in Budapest, and she was organizing some really great meetups and conferences like NS Budapest, and she was co-organizing the Functional Swift Conference and Craft. So I think it's going to be super interesting to talk to her next episode. So for this episode, we've reached the end, and all that remains is for me to thank you very much, Louis, for coming onto the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. And uh, yeah, it was really interesting to hear all of your experience, like creating a language, building a compiler and things like that. So if people want to learn more about what you do and uh, kind of follow your work online, where should they go? Yeah, so as some people may already know, I'm pretty active on Twitter and you can follow me at Lobidawe. I'm also uh, pretty active in the open source community at the moment in terms of iOS. Uh, and so I'm also on GitHub and I also have a blog, a blog on silverfox.be, which you can check out. Great. We'll make sure to put links in the show notes to all those things. And thank you everybody for listening. And I'll talk to you on the next episode.